Welcome to the Gentleman Ultra Podcast. Uh, today, I'm honoured to be joined by a journalist whose work you might have seen on BBC, Ray and The Guardian, and an award-winning author whose titles include uh, Blood on the Altar, uh, Place of Refuge, Utopian Dreams, and released in 2022, uh, The Po, Italy's Longest River, and of course, an uh, award-winning football book, Ultra. And if you don't know, know by now, of course, uh, talking to Tobias Jones. Tobias, thanks for joining us. Not at all. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure and a, a delight. I'm absolutely stoked to be talking to you. So, um, yeah, the book Ultra. So you explore the history and the role that ultras play in Italian football. And, of course, you, you predominantly follow Cosenza um, from, from Calabria, for those that don't know, in the book. Um, Tell us how the book all came about and why you chose Cosenza. And of course, um, yeah, I guess the origins of the book and where it all started. Yeah, I mean, I've got sort of two main threads to my writing career, I suppose. One is writing about true crime. You know, I write a lot about uh, criminals and organised criminality and uh, missing people and murders. And the other sort of thread of my writing life is completely different, which is uh, communal living and uh, belonging and tribalism and so on. So, you know, I founded a couple of residential communities and lived on residential communities. So, so those are my sort of two professional and human interests. And it seemed to me that Ultras just combines the two perfectly um, because Obviously, unfortunately, a lot of ultras are um, involved in uh, illicit trade, should we say, from ticket touting to uh, drug dealing, petty, petty criminal stuff to major criminal stuff. But at the same time, uh, you know, they're very important uh, places of belonging for vulnerable kids in in many many cities and suburbs and towns and villages across Italy and as well as all the dark stuff there's a lot of incredible sort of light stuff the, the sort of you know the benevolence of the ultra groups that the charity work they do um so I suppose that's the that's the the genesis really um I had a very good editor um who, who came up with the idea he said I think you should you should write a book on the ultras um and as soon as he said it, I thought I, well, I thought two things I thought yeah absolutely what an unbelievably good idea why didn't I think of it and then my heart also sank because I thought this is going to be very very hard work in terms of access and travel and um you know so so that's how the book came about that was probably in 20 2015 2016 we started talking about it and it was and you you you're like it's sort of like a two-part book isn't it you've got you know Cosenza and the first sort of part and then like the playoffs and then also sort of interwoven with a history of the ultras movement um wh- why did you pick Cosenza was there a particular reason behind it or did you run through a list of clubs and tick them all off and check their histories and their politics, et cetera, et cetera? Or was it just you fell in love with Calabria like we all do? Yeah, I mean, it was lots of things. It certainly was the fact that I I fell in love with 
Calabria and the Cosentini, um, I'd been filming a documentary in Sicily and decided to get the very, very, very long train back to Parma. And so decided to stop in Cosenza for a week. And, and I went there for all sorts of reasons. I mean, I knew the, I knew the club and the city was very interesting. You know, it's been called the Athens of the South. It's got a very sort of creative, unusual university. It tends to gather a lot of very alternative countercultural people. I'd read that they'd um, occupied hotels confiscated from the mafia and opened them up for refugees, that they were running food banks for the poor, that one of the sort of so-called ultras, he wasn't really an ultra, but he was hanging out with them all the time, was this Catholic priest um, who was always trying to persuade them to, to renounce violence. The city had a midfielder murdered in 1989 and the ultras were at the forefront of trying to get justice for him. Um, the ultra groups through the 80s, Cosenza, although the football team itself isn't, you know, I mean, it's completely off the map, really, in, in terms of sporting prowess, but the actual ultra group was cutting edge. You know, they organised the first national conference of ultras. Um, they did all sorts of original uh, flags and uh, chants. I mean, the, the, the soundtrack of the Cosenza Ultras is unbelievable. You know, they're proper good singers um, with great inventive uh, songs. And, and, and so it just seemed to me a city that could counterbalance all the dark stuff. So there's a lot of, I knew going into it through looking in the archives and the, the press reports, there was clearly a lot of murders, missing people, drug dealing, match fixing, ticket touting, bribery, extortion, you know, there's no end of the dark stuff. And I wanted something that was lighter, that gave an idea of what it's, what it's like when that's not there. So it sort of counterbalanced the book in some ways. Yeah. And can you explain for those that don't know how the, the subculture of the ultras has changed from, you know, from through the sixties through to the to the eighties to the nineties to to even now, and he, and even in terms of like politics, how like I know growing up I always saw posters or banners, and you know, in speaking to my dad, he'd always say, "Oh, that's you know, like it's a left wing thing or it's a political thing." Um, when now I, I, I maybe I'm getting the wrong impression because I'm you know a million miles away, but it tends to be very hard nosed and far right and. Is is that is that a accurate reflection, or is it just that's just how the the subcultures changed over the last forty odd years, and and that's that that's it? Yeah, I mean it's it's obviously difficult to summarise the changes in a in a subculture over fifty years, but I think you know you can make some generalisations. You know, the ultra movement started really um, in the late sixties, early seventies, and they were on the whole tear away teenagers um sort of larrikin lightly lads who were fed up with a slightly stayed sat down tactical pontificating pipe smoking fans and they decided to go where the cheap tickets were behind the goal and uh make a lot of noise with drums and trumpets and flags and you know a lot of a lot of silliness really when you look at the the ultra stuff 
from those early days, it was really like a carnival. Um, and like I say, the leaders were very young. If you look at a lot of the historical leaders of ultra groups, they were 13, 14, 15. Um, most of the names were taken from far left, uh, you know, partisan groups or from radical insurgencies, left-wing insurgencies across the globe. Um, so, you know, you'd have names like the Brigades or, or whatever. Um, and, you know, there was always, there was always an element of, we're the extremists. And if you, if you set yourself up as an extremist, people can always outflank your extremism. So over the years, the movement got, uh, less perhaps less less diverse and more homogenous so you get certain things like very quickly a megaphone is introduced so that there's one leader of the of the choir if you like who dictates what songs are going to be sang various you know accidental murders take place you know manslaughters happen that leads to a sense of these are our martyrs. And of course, as we know from religious fundamentalism, once you've got martyrs, um, people are prepared to take revenge. Uh, so, you know, what, be, what, what originally started as sort of a bit like playground cops and robbers rather quickly became uh, quite serious, you know, baseball bats, billiard balls in socks, even knives, and eventually even guns. So there was an increase in the violence. And then in the 80s, a lot of groups sort of became proudly from the far right. Some have been from the far right anyway. So, you know, Lazio, Verona, um, you know, lots of groups had always had their roots in, in neo-fascism. But I think in the 80s and certainly in the 90s, a lot of, a lot of uh, Kurva became, Kurva, the terraces became far right. So that now if you were to make a generalisation, I think that the vast majority are far right. They always say, you know, we don't have politics in the, on the terraces, but it's not true. I mean, everything's political as we know. So, um they tend to be far right. And if you look at the age of the leaders, you know, the age of the leaders now, they are 50, 60, 70. So it's, it's very different to what it was in, in the early days. Mm, yeah. It's, is it, um, is it, I was, that's what I was going to say, actually, while you're, while you're answering that question, like, is it, is it possible to have the ultras without politics and, and then vice versa? Like, do, are people surprised, I guess, how much power and sway they do have? over politics or even how much influence they have over clubs and over local politics for that matter? I don't think, I don't think it's surprising. I mean, it's, like I say, the ultras will always say we don't have any politics in, 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 on the terraces by which they mean, you know, we don't want political symbolism and, and that kind of holds true, but it's, you know, it's partly a question of numbers. You know, if you can control 
500, 1,000, 2,000, 10,000 fans, you've got a lot of power, especially if it's a very hierarchical group which uh, is obedient to the leaders through both carrot and baseball bat. Um, then you've got a lot of power because you can endorse a certain political uh, candidate. You can call a fan strike if the club isn't doing what you want. You can veto particular shops or newspapers or bookshops, or you can tell all your uh, followers to do certain things. So, you know, there's a lot of ground level power just through force of numbers. If that force of numbers is also backed up with uh, unashamed use of, of muscle at the very least, it's inevitable that they've got a lot of a lot of sway. And like speaking of that, recently we saw a lot of sway and a lot of influence at the Inter versus Sampdoria game from memory. Um, not only just talking to that, but um, oh, actually, yeah, talking to that. For for those that don't know, I guess you can explain it a million times better than me. Are you able to give us a, a quick rundown of of what happened there and? And why it was such a shock to see, you know, half an empty stand behind a goal during during a game. Yeah, so on the 29th of, of October this year, 2022, um, a 69-year-old man who was one of the head ultras, Victoria Boyocchi, uh, was murdered um, as he was going home to watch the Inter-Sampdoria match. And, he, you know, he's banned from the stadium because he's got a very long criminal record. He was murdered with five shots um, to his chest and throat, died on his way to hospital. And out of a sign of you know, respect for him, the inter-ultras decided to empty the terraces. It's, you know, it's controversial because there's no way anyone could say no. You, know, you can't have a half-empty terrace because that doesn't make the statement. So there was a lot of strong arming and you can imagine the amount of, uh, you know, parents and children, families, pensioners who have nothing to do with the archers who are just there because that's where the cheap tickets are, who are sort of frog marched out. Um, and that, that became, became controversial, but that's, that's the law of the terraces, according to the ultras. You know, if you go on the terraces, you obey the, the terrorist culture is what they would say. Yeah. You don't belong there if you're not prepared to uh, make a sign of mourning to one of their leaders. Yeah, yeah. And even like when I was there in 2016, that was before the Brescia and Inter game. I was outside um, Brescia's home ground and I, I was blown away how just how organised they were in terms of, you know, banners, in terms of merchandise, in terms of food and drinks. Um, do you think people underestimate exactly how organized it is and and um and how commercialized the whole ultra movement has become yeah i mean i think you know a lot of the british observers of hooliganism will have in mind a sort of you know drunken debauched flabby stomached air punching you know it's like herding cats, you know, it's, it, it was it was really sort of, you know, people who liked a good 
ruck, a good punch up and light beer in vast quantities. But there was very little about it that was sort of hierarchical and organised and structured, whereas the ultras are now, if not in the early days, very, very hierarchical. You know, there's no way I could start singing a song. One of the first times I did an away trip with Cosenza Ultras, I said, you know, if I want to sing a song, can I just, I knew the answer, but I wanted to hear them say it. Can I just sing anything I want? Absolutely not. So I said, what would happen if I keep singing? He said, you'll get a slap. And then if I keep singing, he sort of smiled as if, you know, the answer was obvious. Um, so there's no, there's no spontaneity um, in a lot of these, these contexts. Um, and they are very well organised. You know, there's a weekly meeting, there's normally headquarters, there's a, a board of directors, or the direttivo. Um, they will have their own merchandising. You know, the Lazio Ultras even, even issued a, a sort of a, a dress code recently. So if you look at the Ultras now, they'll almost all be dressed the same. Um, not all of them, but, you know, a lot of them would all be in the same black, t-shirts or the same green bomber jackets or whatever so this there's a there's a uniform to it you know so there's a sense that it's become almost paramilitary and anything that's paramilitary is regimented and and sort of you know it's it, it, it's well organized and did that surprise you like going back to the book ultra of course like you know before the first match day i guess were you aware of you know, what you're about to get yourself into? Did you have any sort of sort of conceptions of what was about to happen or were you just, you know, throw yourself in at the deep end and away you go and discover it as, as you went? I mean, what I loved about travelling with the Cosenza Ultras is that they are, having said that, you know, the Ultra Movement is very well organised, the Cosenza Ultras are fantastically disorganised in terms of, you know, getting to the stadium on time, getting the bus or the train that we all said we would get, you know, we're leaving at midnight to travel 800 kilometres to get to Carpi and we still can't find someone who was last seen two hours ago in the pub on his eighth beer. And, you know, they, they, they are, are famous for, you know, being unpredictable. You know, there's a line I quote in the book by a policeman who says, you know, you never know when the Cosentini are going to turn up. Um, so, you know, that that side of things was kind of enjoyably haphazard. Um, but I mean, I kind of think I knew enough about, before I started going, hanging out with them, I, I think I knew enough about the movement to know that, um, you know, there's there's a there's a clear hierarchy there. Um, did you have to, and, did you have to make it make yourself known and make it known that you were writing the book before the season yeah, started? I, I and did, get I, a, I get only, approval, I guess, from from, from yeah, the leaders. Yeah, a couple of times I went unannounced because I knew they wouldn't let me in, and you know, so I've got to some pretty unusual. Uh, headquarters in grotty suburbs of grotty cities because I needed to get inside and see people and meet people and you know but actually I didn't like doing I don't like the dishonesty of that and so actually what I always did is I was very upfront and said you know I knocked on the door and said take me to your leader Mm -hmm. and um 
and actually I think you know it helps being English because I think if I were Italian sort of national or sporting rivalries would kick in I think it helped that um I like drinking beer and singing <laughs> you know um and and I love football anyway and I'm fairly easy to get along with so although I thought access would be really difficult actually it, it, it wasn't in a lot of contexts um you know in other places it, it, it was and still is hard but um but yeah I think the best thing is always is always transparency and just be open with them about what you're doing because you know you know as a as a journalist that everyone really wants to tell their story there are very few people who don't want to tell their story mm, yeah and what what was the timeline of the book were you just attending just all away away matches for those that don't that don't know um you sort of had like a structure to the book can you can you talk to that as well in terms of how you broke it up into the two parts yeah i mean i'm I, i'm fascinated by structure in terms of you know, whether it's a journalistic essay or writing a documentary or writing a book, structure is so important because if you get the structure right, then it can sort of become a real page turner. So what I wanted to do was tell the history of the ultra movement chronologically from the late 60s, even with, you know, hints from ancient Rome when the old arena and Colosseum was an important sort of antecedent of the stadium. So take it from the very early days to the present day. And yet I didn't want to write a history book. So I sort of alternated those historical moments with contemporary moments of me just going to endless games. Lots often with, with the Cosentini, um, but going to loads of other games with all sorts of other groups. And often I would, I would go with the other groups because say in the seventies or eighties or nineties, there had been an iconic crime or an allegation or a missing person or whatever that I was going to include in the historic part of the book. And I needed to do interviews. And since I was there, I thought, well, I'll jump in the minibus with them and, and travel 800 miles and see what they're talking about and what they're doing. So, um, so yeah, I mean that 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 was the structure of the book. I mean, I was very, very, very lucky that the first year I was following Cosenza, they got into the playoff semi-final to go up to the promised land of Serie B. And so I sort of opened the book with them winning the playoff final at half time. And then it's that classic thing, you know, that you see in films and TV series that you you leave the cliffhanger for the reader and then go back through all the history and all the journey to get to that final and then close that first part of the book with a, with a result. So, um, yeah, the structure was interesting, but I kind of, it made sense to me. And I hope, I mean, it is quite complicated, but I sort of trust that readers are clever and can understand what's going on. Mm, yeah. And how's your relationship now with the Ultras? You obviously still follow Cosenza and still keep in touch with a lot of the people yeah, you so, made, made contact with writing the book? Yeah. So, I mean, with them... Yeah, I mean, you know, I go to quite a few away matches still with them. I mean, I don't go to home matches because it's over a thousand kilometres from where I live in Panama. But away matches I go to a lot and see them and take my kids to. And, um, you know, they're always as disorganised and as fun and chaotic and crazy as ever. Um, And, yeah, I mean, what I find is that 
you know, the book was translated into Italian and was was well received, although it was given a terrible subtitle, um, you know, for commercial reasons. I think they wanted to sell more copies and sort of put mafia in the title, which is terrible. Um, but but there are so many interesting issues around the ultras that I still sort of call them for interviews because there's, there are always things that are happening, whether it's racist chanting against Romelu Lukaku or whether it's, you know, another murder or, you know, the resolution of murder, whatever it is, you know, one's often having to get back in that world. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of still on the fringes, as it were. Yeah. And you mentioned before, like about the ultras, how it's, um, I guess it's it's a, a sense of belonging and a sense of identity and community. Um, and you also men- mentioned about um, some shared living. Is that what you, I think that's what you said? But yeah, um, I know you've delved into the world of uh, communitarian, if I say that correctly. Um, and you've talked about uh, Windsor Hill Wood, which you were the co-founder of. Um, yeah, for those that don't know, can you tell us that story about um, that because that's the topic of your book, A Place of Refuge. Is that right? Mm, yeah. yeah. Um, how, how you came about setting that up and and why it was set up, I guess. Um, and yeah, I guess how that all went down. Yeah. So this is quite interesting because this, yeah, it's a long story. Um, <laughs> so my second book was called Utopian Dreams and it was, me and my wife and our firstborn traveling around various communities in England and Italy, trying to understand, you know, what alternatives there are to a very sort of hyper-individualized, atomized, lonely 21st century living. And uh, we came across a really inspiring community in Dorset um, that we got involved with and I became a trustee there for five years. and. Uh, and we decided to try and set up something similar. So I'm from Somerset and we found this sort of 10 acre woodland and with a small, it was an old quarry. So there's a quarry master's house on the edge of the woodland. And so we basically set up a, a micro community there. So it was us as a family of five and we had five or six guests who were mostly either recovering from addictions, were suffering PTSD from war zones or, other reasons uh people with eating disorders bereavements um psychosis whatever all sorts of you know the normal speed bumps that life throws at you and um so we we lived there together you know sharing all our meals raising pigs and sheep and goats and chickens and geese and bees and doing a lot of carpentry um, and that kind of felt a bit like my Cat Stevens moment, you know, giving up your career for your for your faith. And um, it was an amazing experience. And. You know, I think. I mean, I could talk about this probably much longer than you want to listen to it, but I think. What we found is that so many of our guests had had endless you know, years, if not decades of social services interventions and sort of clipboard uh, questionnaires and uh, bureaucratic schematic attempts to heal them. 
and we uh, we found that actually what they responded to and what they needed was a loving family with regular meals, hard manual labour, clear rules and rhythm to the day, um, and sort of a lot of silliness and joy. And and it worked, you know. For lots of people, it didn't work. Lots of people sort of left in the middle of the night um, or, you know, couldn't take it. But a lot of people could, and it worked very well for them. So, so you know, there's a lot more to say about that. That's sort of a large part of my life. And we set up a, a similar thing afterwards. And then a, a third thing, which is a non-residential thing here in Palmer. But the sort of the relevance for that in the ultra communities is that... Um, some of the some of the deepest and I think sort of purest, if I can use that term, ultras are the ones who maintain that original vision of the terraces as somewhere that's very inclusive. So one of my friends in Cosenza, jokingly but also seriously, spoke about Mamma Kurva, you know, the mother of the terraces. This this loving, very sort of Madonna-ish image, you know, the mother who welcomes the. The, the the excluded and the dispossessed and the rejected. And it's true that even now you see a lot of those, you know, the scallywags of the street end up in these groups because they don't have a mother or father and they don't have siblings and they don't have any stable family and the ultra group becomes their family. And, you know, it's very easy to write about all the, you know, the criminality that goes on and all the dark stuff. But actually, the the sense of belonging and bonding and the sense of purpose that it gives people, I think is really important. And, you know, if nowhere else is giving these people that sense of belonging, whether it's, you know, a political party isn't doing it or school isn't doing it or churches often, unfortunately, aren't doing it, they get that sense of belonging. And if that's where they get their belonging and someone insults their family rips up their flag or steals their three shorn or insults their shirt you know they'll do something to defend it um and I, I so I sort of it's a very long-winded reply I'm sorry I think um it, I think sort of having having worked with a lot of sort of the excluded and dispossessed over the years helped my entrance into that world because I wasn't coming in with a sort of finger pointing attitude of you know, you're a bunch of crooks. I was coming in as as sort of someone who wanted to understand what the sort of what was going on in the tribe. You know, mm. and was it hard to separate? Um, like, obviously, you were living at uh, Windsor Hill Wood with your family, as well as people that you were bringing into your your space. Was it hard to separate the two? You know, did you? Was there ever any any issues or was that just a part of the process and of the learning? Because was that the first time that you and your wife had done something like that? Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was extremely uh, challenging because uh, there was, you know, if you set up a, a community as an extended family home, all your family and all your possessions belong to the community. Um, and that brings huge advantages and epic challenges. And, you know, everyone feels like your child, even if it's a 70 year old widow. Um, so, you know, some people 
might start competing with your children for attention or uh, might, you know, feel that, um, you know, so if it's a it's a shared space, you can't just stop to watch the football on a Sunday afternoon. I'm guessing, if you're yeah. supposed to be working, <laughs> there has to be yeah. some sacrifices. <laughs> yeah, you're never off duty, you know. Yeah. Um, but but I think that's I think that's why it worked, you know, because um, because like I say, most people wanted a wanted a family space, and of course, you know, I'm afraid if a lot of people and I'm afraid this is true for a lot of our guests, have had uh, dodgy or violent or unreliable or, uh, you know, bullshitting fathers. It's inevitable that when they come and live with a new father, me, um, they will project some of that onto you. Um, so you're constantly having to distinguish between, uh, between their past and their present um hard to shake all the trauma off yeah just wash away yeah yeah but what's that what's that world like um sort of i guess um during a pandemic and then like post pandemic did did that change is that is that space sort of changed or is it still um well so we left we we left windsor wood in 2017 to come back to italy so that was obviously pre-pandemic um I know because we're still in touch with the, very much in touch with the family who took over from us. I know that it was very challenging for them and all sorts of communities because, you know, communal living is a bit like it being Christmas every day, you know, with all the joys and all the challenges of the bonkers uncle and the mad aunt and the brother you can't get on with or whatever it is. So it's like being stuck in a lift. In normal situations, the lift doors are constantly opening in the community and you're being refreshed by endless visitors and people who are curious and people who are bringing gifts. And, you know, so if your doors are always open, there's this fresh air that gets in and livens the space up. And if it's closed, I think, you know, it's very hard in lockdown. So I wasn't there, but, um, yeah, I think it's very challenging. And how's the carpentry skills now? Are they still... Uh, well, this desk I'm sat at, I made, um, and doesn't wobble. So, so yeah, I mean, I love carpentry. I find carpentry dovetails very well with writing because I think if you are sat at your desk a lot of the time staring at a screen being cerebral, it's quite good to get up and do something that's manual and, you know, sanding and sawing and oiling and, and actually a lot of my best ideas come when I'm, you know, I'm using a plane or a drill or, um, you know, I'm very much an amateur carpenter, but yeah, I, I, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned you've got a, a, a shared space in Parma now. Is that right? Is that what you're creating now or you have created? Yeah. So we set up something called common homes. So it's basically, I mean, it's non-residential, but it's um, the idea is that it's a, a sort of, a ludic, playful, cultural centre in the English language for people in Palmer, especially because during lockdown, no one could get to Britain or Australia or Ireland or wherever they wanted to learn English. And um, and because, you know, English teaching in Italy is very, very, very poor 
for all sorts of reasons. So we we thought we'd set up a shared space. And the idea, we've only been open for a few months, but the idea is very much to put immigrants at the centre of it because a lot of immigrants and refugees are here speak very good English because they're coming from parts of the world where if it's not first language, it's a close second. And so they speak very good English. And I think, you know, a lot of them are uh, offended by being the charity cases who are, you know, being given handouts and would like to be the host that's that's offering a space to Italians. So our our idea, our hope is to invert the invert the the mechanism and, and, and put sort of immigrants as the hosts of the of, of the community. We've got a long way to go, but it's it's a beautiful space. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Well, I wish you all the best with that and hopefully we'll hear more more about that. Um if yes. possible. Yeah. Give everyone a yeah share. common homes in the center of in the center of Palma. In bizarrely, coincidentally, Providence is a weird thing. It's in a in the street called Via Casa, Emilio Casa, so it means home. So Common Homes in Palma, we've got, you know, we're on Instagram and Twitter, and if you look for Common Home Palma, you'll find it. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Excellent. All right, Tobias, thanks very much for your time, sharing such, uh, yeah, great story about the book Ultra and, you know, the shared lifestyle and Common Homes. It's, it's much appreciated. Not at all. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. All the best. There we go. That was an awesome conversation with Tobias Jones, the author of the award-winning book, Ultra. I think we covered a few different subjects there, but as we do, it always veers off into all different variety of subjects. Uh, Don't forget to rate and review and share the podcast where you can. Um, Keep your eye on thegentlemanultra.com. There's plenty of great content there for everyone, regardless of who you support. Uh, Thanks for listening and enjoy your culture.